Good morning, church family. Good to be with you this morning as we start the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, So excited to continue this morning worshiping the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, uh, through the teaching and the listening and the uh, meditating upon His Word. The book of Ecclesiastes is, we've titled this series, which will go probably a minimum of 14 to 15 weeks and maybe as long as 25 weeks. We'll just have to see. We've titled it Words of Delight in Truth. And that's, if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, you're probably asking the question, how did they come up with that title? And at the end of chapter 12, the author describes um, everything that was written before as words of delight in truth. And even though these are words that um, as the author describes as goads or uh, stickers, it's prickly, they hurt a little bit. Uh, at the end of the day, they're going to bring great delight because they are certainly God's word and his truth. Today's sermon is we're going to go through just the first 11 verses today to kind of uh, intro the book is titled, When All You Ever Wanted Isn't Enough. When all you ever wanted isn't enough. And I want to start off this morning um, asking you just a few questions to ponder, just to stick in the back of your head. Question number one, what is it that you always wanted out of life? Question number two, what is it that you once wanted more than anything, and now that you have it, it's not enough? Number three, what are you hoping will end or come into your life that will once and for all make you happy? What are you hoping will end in your life or come into your life that will once and for all make you happy? In 2005, Tom Brokaw interviewed Tom Brady on the television show show 60 Minutes. And this was, uh, of course, 14 years ago. 13 Super Bowls ago, and Tom Brady answered uh, Brokaw's questions this way. Tom said, there's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? And we know that Tom Brady's won several more Super Bowls since then. But my guess is, particularly since he does not profess faith in Christ right now, my guess is is that he would have the same response to his life even after accomplishing more. The Jewish comedian Gilda Radner said this at the end of her life. She said, I wanted a perfect ending. Now I've learned the hard way that some poems don't rhyme and some stories don't have a clear beginning, middle, or end. Neither Tom or Gilda, as far as I know, Um, are Christians. So you might expect statements like these from unbelievers like Tom and Gilda who lack hope, joy, and peace that comes through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
But I don't want you to go there this morning. I think if we're honest this morning, uh, you and I have asked similar questions and or have felt the same way. There's got to be more. There's got to be more for my life than this. Ecclesiastes brings to mind often the the brevity and the fragility of life and how quickly we forget people and events that were once so important to us. The people, the places, the events that most shaped our lives are at some point forgotten. My wife and I, Nancy, were talking about this recently, how there's been so many people over the years that have come into our life and we have lived significant life with them. We've shared a ton with them. And then they're gone out of our life. They've left the church for whatever reason. And here we are five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, and we have all but forgotten the times that we shared with them. Recently, I was sitting at my kitchen table and I was reminiscing uh, about when my children were little. And I think I do that more and more um, on this side of life. At age 61, I reminisce a lot about the past, and I think about the future. I'm kind of a weirdo, as many of you know. Yes, in many ways, but the, the, input, the way that I'm referring to right now is, is that, as, as you know and I've told you before, is that I like to... Uh, hang out at cemeteries. I haven't done it in a couple months, but I've spent my Tuesday mornings with the Lord in a cemetery um, more times than I can count. And the reason I do that is that I want to remember death. I want to be reminded often that um, death is in the future for me. And I know it sounds like a downer. A lot of you may not want to contemplate death, but, but contemplating our mortality, what it does for me anyways, is it, is it uh, causes me to um, live today um, full out, to enjoy the day, to enjoy all the good gifts that the Lord has given me, and to live my life in joyful, joyful submission to Him. Um, and it's, it's been very beneficial to me. So I was reminiscing at the kitchen table, and I, I tried to remember my, my, my now 32-year-old daughter, when she was um, probably two, three, four years old, she had the, the cutest, uh, squeakiest voice. And I was sitting at the kitchen table, and I was trying to hear her voice, that squeaky voice, and I couldn't hear it. It was, it was claustrophobic. It was, I just, I wanted to just go back and remember that voice and enjoy it um, as it once was, but I couldn't. And then I started thinking about all the times where I stressed out about my future and I stressed out about the future of my children. I reflected on all the times where I took myself and my circumstances too seriously. I can't remember sitting on the lap of my Grandpa Hardy, who died when I was five or six years old, and this is one of the the last pictures um, that I have with me and him. And outside of this picture, um, I don't remember anything about him. I was the first um, Hardy in our family to graduate from college, and I don't remember walking down that aisle. I don't remember uh, the feeling of accomplishment in graduating. 
My beautiful wife of 38 years, as you can see in this picture here, I was a lot younger. And I, my wife and I grew up with each other. And I try to um, hearken back and remember uh, the early days of our marriage. And it's hard for me to grab a hold of. And then when my first, my first child, Natalie, was born, I don't remember being in the delivery room. I don't remember um, holding her that first time. All these, these significant memories in my life are all but a distant memory. The memories of homecoming royalty or being named one of the top stockbrokers in America, my, main, my many radio updates, the houses that Nancy and I bought and sold, the businesses that we started are all distant memories for me, all but forgotten by not only me, but by many others. I've known many people, I know uh, actually many of you now, or, or some of you now anyways, who are Christians, who, who, who can say right now that, that your, life, your lives don't make sense. They, things just don't add up. There's no obvious rhyme or reason for what life has given you. And this, this beautiful paradoxical book of Ecclesiastes is written by an honest author who offers up some of the same questions that you and I are asking. Some of the same questions about relationships and oppression and injustice and wealth and health and pleasure and death. I think you're going to be encouraged. It's going to be a hard book. I want to give you a warning up front, but I think you'll be encouraged. The key question is asked right up front in chapter 1. The key question that goes through the entire book is this. What does a man gain by all the effort in which he toils under the sun. What does a man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? And we're going to see several main themes or threads that go throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. One of the themes is striving after the wind. Another is the vanity of life. It's mentioned 38 times in this book. Another is under the sun, 29 times. Thankfully, another theme is to an encouragement to enjoy life. To enjoy life, even though life is vain, as we're going to talk about it, even though um, it's like striving after the wind at times, that the author is going to remind us to enjoy it, to seize the day seven different times in this book. And then finally, uh, we're going to be encouraged and reminded to fear God. Ecclesiastes speaks to everyone living in this sinful world. The author, or the preacher, as I'm going to describe in a minute, hides none of his own sins, struggles, or questions as he pours out his own soul. The preacher lets us know that we're not alone in our questions. Questions like, what is the meaning of life? Why is there so much suffering and injustice? Does God even care? Does God even hear me? Is God a loving God? Is life worth living? Is success wrong? And the, the ladies in this church since the fall have been studying the book of Proverbs in their Monday night Bible study and in the uh, Thursday morning heart to heart. And I've heard just great things that the ladies are growing and being encouraged by this, uh, this great book of Proverbs. 
So I thought it would be good maybe to, uh, to contrast the book of Proverbs with the book of Ecclesiastes. Both truth, both God's word, but there's differences in them, and I want to just talk about that for a minute. The reason that you know Proverbs is true, other than it being God's word, is because it's ancient and it's old. For Ecclesiastes, you know it's true because you've actually tasted and experienced what the author is talking about in your own life. The book of Proverbs is written, if you will, to increase your odds of success in marriage, in parenting, in life in general. Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, makes some observations on the other side of success. Ecclesiastes actually comes alongside of Proverbs and says that Proverbs is not airtight. If the author of Proverbs was a counselor, I would pay big bucks to get his advice. But you may not always want the counsel from the preacher of Ecclesiastes even though it is solid counsel. It is rock-solid counsel. The preacher, the author, as we're going to talk about in a minute, of Ecclesiastes, sought to find words of delight. In chapter 12 it says this, And uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. So once again, these are words that are not always easy to take. But in the end, if we take them, they're going to bring great joy because they are words of truth. Here's a money-back guarantee for you. This book will help you worship the one true God. With all its questions and doubt, it points us to, over and over again, to a mighty God, to a sovereign creator, to an all-powerful ruler, and to a wise God. It encourages us to live in the moment, enjoying our life, and keeping our eyes above the sun. Verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. There are two different voices that we will hear from in this book. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 1, and then verse 8 through the end of the book in chapter 12 are written by the author. Verses 3 in chapter 1 through chapter 12, verse 7, are written by somebody called the preacher or the teacher. And the author is anonymous. We don't know, and we don't know for, uh, for sure who the preacher is. Over the years, the preacher was thought to be Solomon, but more recent scholarship is not quite so sure. We do know that the preacher, we we know from verse 1 that the preacher is the son of David and he is a king in Jerusalem. And that certainly makes you think about Solomon. But the reason that we might question it's Solomon is because at the end of Solomon's life, he gave his allegiance to other gods and he was more than likely apostate. But please, please don't spend a lot of time this week doing a deep, um, exhaustive study on who the preacher is because you're going to miss the point and you're going to expend a lot of energy focusing on what's not important. Solomon wrote Proverbs. He wrote the Song of Songs. And both, in both of those in the introduction, he said that he wrote them. In the book of Ecclesiastes, um, he does not give himself credit for writing this. Here's what we do know. 
is that the Hebrew for preacher or teacher is Koheleth, which means one who gathers the assembly together for instruction. So whoever this preacher is that, um, that is speaking the words from chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 12, verse 8, um, we know that he is, a, he, is, um, he is speaking to the assembly, those who are professing faith in Yahweh. Oftentimes when we teach through a book, it's really important to, to uh, talk about the context, the who, what, why, when, and where. The context, context is rather simple here in Ecclesiastes. The audience is uh, the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. The issues and questions that, are being, that they have are no different than what we have today. The questions that they were asking and the issues that they were dealing with are the same exact questions and issues that we're dealing with here today. And how do we know that? It's because the preacher tells us over and over again that there's nothing new under the sun. So remember that. So the author, in verses 1 and 2, he introduced the teacher-preacher in verse 1, and now he summarizes everything that the preacher's going to say. He summarizes it all in one verse, in verse 2. And he sounds a little bit like Eeyore. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's really the theme of the book. And you read that one verse and you go, wow, I'm sure glad I came today. But I want to encourage you to, um, this is poetry, and it's to actually um, step into the mood of the preacher. Because we have all been in this place. Some of you are in this place right now. Uh, We've all been in it at one point, and we're all going to be in it again. The mood here is heavy, it's somber, it's depressing, and it's actually urgent. And before we can move any further past uh, verse 2, is that we need to understand the Hebrew for vanity. What's the Hebrew word that vanity represents? And it is Hevel. And everything gets off on the wrong interpretive foot when Hevel is rendered meaningless rather than vanity. We're at a fork in the road in the entire book right now, and if we go left, meaningless, instead of going right, vanity, um, you're gonna, we're going we're gonna to miss the point of the preacher as he goes through this book. And the reason we know that life is not meaningless for anybody. That that every human being was created in the image of the triune God and was knit together in their mother's womb fearfully and wonderfully. That we all have a purpose. That God had a purpose in creating us. The better translation um, is vanity rather than meaningless. Um, Hevel, which is the Hebrew word, means smoke or vapor. It's a wisp of smoke that is temporary. The image here is is, uh, mist or breath. So on on a cold Colorado January morning, we haven't had many of those, but we've all been, when it's been close to zero and you step outside, what's the first thing you see in front of you? Your breath. And what do you notice about that vapor or your breath? Exactly. It's there for a minute, and then it's gone. 
It's there for a second, and then it's gone. The author is saying that everything under the sun is like our breath. It's there for a second, and then it's gone. It's fleeting. It's transient. It evaporates. The psalmist in Psalm 39.5 says something similar. He says, Behold, you you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere hevel, a mere breath. James 4.14 says something similar. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But that's not where hevel stops. It's, um, not only is uh, hevel transient, here for a second and gone, Not only is our frozen breath transient when we breathe it out, but it can also block or extort our vision. Also, it's unsubstantial. You can't can't grab a hold of it. When you try to reach out and grab a hold of your breath, um, it it is unsubstantial. And even during our short lifespan, it's sometimes hard to make sense of it or to control it. Not one single aspect of our existence, not one single thing that will happen to us today is ultimately in our control. Nothing that happens is ultimately in your control. And at some point, um, all of it will be forgotten by you and everyone else. You think there's meaning or substance, but then it's gone. It's temporary. It's fleeting. Life is not only brief and futile, it's not only... um, Um, unsubstantial. It not only blocks our view at times, uh, but it's confusing and puzzling at times. It's a paradox or enigma, enigma, excuse me. One plus one doesn't always equal two in our lives. Things that we thought were certain or true aren't always that way. So it means, so, so it means in these cases, a paradox or an enigma. I think you've all experienced that. I know, um, I know some of you have. Um, I've got um, my uh, sister who's next in line with me, um, who her and her husband raised four beautiful kids, three daughters and one son. And they, in their parenting, and I say this with no false humility, they probably parented together better than Nancy and I parented together. They did an amazing job of raising their kids up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Yet their youngest child, their son, is, has been in prison and he's back in prison. And nobody knows what went on. Nobody knows what happened for sure. There's some recent clues as to what happened. But the paradox is, is that they did everything that the book of Proverbs said to do. They did everything that the parenting books said to do. In fact, my sister teaches parenting classes, and this happened. That's a paradox. And Ecclesiastes is chocked full of paradox. Let me give you a couple of examples. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it says this. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. 
Yet God does not give him power to enjoy those gifts. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity or hevel. And what the preacher is saying there in chapter 6 is that God has given all of these gifts. He's given all, but but the, the one who he's given all these gifts to isn't able to enjoy it. It could be um, health. He could have died. Um, who knows what it is? But that is a paradox to work all your life for something and then not be able to enjoy it. Here's another one in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 14 through 15. There is a vanity, a havel, that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. Just stop there for a second. What he's saying, there's a paradox that happens when righteous people are treated worse than the wicked. Then he goes on to say, there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. In other words, there are wicked people out there that, that there's no consequences for them. That their life is actually better than those who are living a righteous life. And he said that this also is Hevel. So Hevel is a paradox. It's, it's fleeting. It's brief. It, it blocks our view. It's unsubstantial. It's hard to control or impossible to control. Hevel, make no mistake about it, is a judgment. It's a result uh, or a condition opposed upon the world um, at the curse. It's our fault. It's humanity's fault. It's not God's fault. This is, an, this is a messed up, broken world. And, and that's this side of the fall, that's by design, as we're going to talk about a little bit later. It's important to know that Hevel is a constant in life. Vanity is a constant in life. Faith does not make it disappear. Becoming a Christian does not make it disappear. And the preacher's not going to t- show you and I how to escape Hevel because we can't, as long as we're on this earth under the sun. He's going to show us how to live with it. And the author will speak from experience, and to prove his point, he's going to take things that people ordinarily find satisfaction in, and he's going to show how empty or incapable these good gifts are for, uh, uh, of providing that which our heart ultimately longs for. He's going to show us that things like money and pleasure and knowledge and power can bring no ultimate satisfaction. The author is going to continually point out what is vain in our lives under the sun in order for us to discover what isn't vain. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 3. That is the question that the teacher asks and wants us to ask. Let's start with understanding the phrase under the sun. What is a man gained by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's going to show up 29 different times. Under the sun simply means on the earth. All of life and creation from the sun down. 
Under the sun is all-encompassing. It's not only um, place, but it's also time. And it's not just this place today. Um, it's every place yesterday and today and tomorrow. It's important also to remember that everything under the sun, everything uh, under the sun was once um, Edenic, uh, as Zach Eswine calls it. It was Edenic with its perfect creation and painless providences. It was the sinfulness of humanity that marred God's perfect creation. Something else to understand. The problem is not necessarily everything under the sun. It's what we do with everything under the sun. It's what we try to gain from everything under the sun. And the word gain here is used eight times in the Old Testament. And all eight times are in Ecclesiastes. And it means to simply, it simply means to profit. Ecclesiastes is going to show us the weariness of our existence so that we will loosen our grip on earthly things and the way that we look to them and use them in order to find meaning and satisfaction. The book of Ecclesiastes is going to beg us to look above the sun to find ultimate satisfaction in meaning. One of the books that I've been reading, one of the commentaries, the author said this about uh, trying to find gain under the sun. He says, looking under the sun for gain is like trying to buy medicine in a shoe store. The shoe store really matters, but there's no medicine to be found there. Everything under the sun matters. It has meaning. But we can't find ultimate satisfaction there. And the toil that the preacher is talking about here, uh, don't think of toil as just the work of making a living. All of life is toil. Every activity under the sun. Think of your day, your week, your last year, your life thus far. As we slip into verse 4, verses 4 through 7, actually, the author is going to prove his point with a carefully constructed argument. He's going to compare the vanity of life, of your life and my life, with the cycles that we observe in nature to illustrate his point. He says in verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And there's something odd about this verse. I don't know if you see it. There's something interesting about this verse. If you were to, you might say something like, uh, the people were coming and going. Or you might say that a generation comes and a generation goes. And you would say it in that order, um, coming and going, to talk about the brevity of how long they stayed. But he says it backwards. He says a generation goes and a generation comes. And the earth remains forever. What is, what the, the illustration here is a lack of gain. That people go and other people come. And ultimately, there's a lack of gain. One goes, another replaces it. Verse 7 um, illustrates the same point with a different metaphor. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. In spite of all the water flowing into the sea, it's not full. There's been no ultimate profit or gain. 
Now, we know this side of science that water evaporates and the clouds bring the rain back to the land. But the point is, the streams have an endless flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. There's no gain. This is life. All good gifts under the sun will never um, bring us gain or fully satisfy us. It gives us a metaphor in verse 5 using the sun. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. And this is meant to describe the monotony and the repetitious nature of life by the routine rising and setting of the sun. After it rises, it sets. Then it hastens back to the place it rises. And hasten literally means it pants toward a new day. It pants. It goes, it goes up and it comes down. It hurries back to where it went up and it went down. And it hurries back to where it went up and it went down. The same old, same old. The sun's job is never done. It's the same thing day in and day out. It's humanity on a hamster wheel. It made me think of the song 9 to 5. I think it was sung by Dolly Parton. I tumble out of bed and stumble through the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition. A yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping. For folks like me, on the job from 9 to 5. I know I didn't sing that even, even close, but you've got the idea. For me, I've got to be honest with you. I, I experience this at times. And it's, and it's actually sinfulness in my own heart because I love what I do. God has is, is just uh, blessed me beyond measure. But sometimes, like today, after I'm done preaching the sermon um, on verses 1 through 11, I'm going to start on verse 12 for the next Sunday. And it can even seem that way with our day offs. It's like Monday, one Monday runs to the next. It shouldn't be that way. But I think if we're honest here, that we will, we're, we're, we're all at this place um, at some level. And he gives another metaphor in verse 6 of the wind, using the wind. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. And in the footnote of your Bibles, you're going to see that it says that this particular verse was written in Cheyenne, Cheyenne, Wyoming. Where the wind never stops swirling. Wind. Who likes wind? There isn't an apparent rhythm or reason to the direction or the purpose of the wind. The wind goes round and round. Life life is like the wind with its uncontrollable ups and downs and twists and turns. Trying to find gain under the sun is like chasing after the wind. Now we're going to see in verses 8 through 11 that the author moves from the natural world to human experience. And we're going to see some of the same things through human experience that we saw in nature. Events and circumstances repeat themselves over and over again without any real gain. But in verse 8, the preacher is going to share his heart. And he's going to um, invite us to, to enter in and to ask the honest question um, if we can relate with this now. And he says in verse 8, all things are full of weariness. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye cannot, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. 
You and I were made for a new and better world. We were created for a relationship with the triune God. To enjoy Him now, but to be with Him forever. And the very reason we are weary and never completely satisfied with everything under the sun is because nothing under the sun can satisfy our heart's longing. Only the one above the sun can satisfy your weary soul. Life actually, get this, um, life is actually meant to be wearisome and without any ultimate satisfaction because of what the preacher says in chapter 3, verse 11, where he says, God has put eternity on man's heart. You see, every human being longs for something that this world cannot give. Everyone longs for something that this world cannot give. How many stories are there out there of wealthy, famous people who had it all? And on the other side of having it all, they take their own life because there's no meaning. They can't find their meaning. They're longing for something. They're longing for eternity. And this side of the sun, um, in our flesh, we all have an insatiable appetite for gain. We have a weary lust for more. More wealth, more health, more pleasure, more recognition. And what the author is saying, and he's going to tell us, he's going to actually tell us to enjoy those good gifts as we go through this book. But he's going to remind us over and over again that those good gifts will never bring ultimate satisfaction this side of eternity. And this may seem like a downer, but it's a reality. All of the good gifts point to a very good creator. The lack of ultimate gain under the sun is actually a very good gift. Because it, it causes us to long for something better. I shared this quote from C.S. Lewis that sums up the longing of the preacher. I shared this on Realm last week, but I'm going to read it because it's great. C.S. Lewis says this, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, and no learning can really satisfy. Verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 is really a restatement of verse 2, if you will. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no gain, the author is saying, in human history. Whatever seems new to us has been, has, is not new. It's been before us, in the ages before us. Certainly, the preacher says, there are 
things new. And then he answers his own question in, in 10b. Nope, there's nothing new. A baby is born. Nope, it's already been. Babies have been born in the past. It's, a, it's new to you, but there's nothing new with babies. Death, wars, victories, tax bills, love, hate, poverty, racism, classism, nationalism, margarine. Yeah, margarine was a new thing, actually. A new thing to kill you. Back when I was um, a kid, my mom gave me margarine because um, the doctors and all that were saying that butter was bad. Now, I'm pretty sure margarine is it, margarine's actually what you um, put um, into your, um, the oil in your car. So if somebody tells you, it's, if, it, if it's truly new, it's, it's, it's going to kill you. <laughs> Consider what the humorist and writer Mark Twain famously said on this matter. He said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And what he's saying there is that anything new is just a variation of something that came before it. Uh, Take communication, for example. We have new ways to communicate today through Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook. Uh, There's texting, messaging, there's email. Um, There's a whole horse of things, a whole um, course of things. There's WhatsApp, um, there's Marco Polo. The whole bit. But really, um, even though these are new means of communication, communication is not new. I mean, there were, there were tablets and then there were scrolls. And then what happened in the 1400s? Anybody know? The printing press, of course. So, so none of these things are really new under the sun. There, there's new methodologies. Same thing with money. Different types of currency, maybe went from rocks to to uh, precious metals, and then to currency, and maybe someday it's going to go to cryptocurrency. But there's really nothing new under the sun. The preacher's overarching theme is that none of these gains or gains in the future will satisfy the longing of our weary hearts. The bottom line is is that there's nothing new that's going to bring us satisfaction. Only the one who made all things new. And now the teacher makes, now, now the, 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 the preacher tells the audience that they don't remember people of the past and people in the future aren't going to remember them. Well, there's a, there's a, um, Fun thing to ponder. He says in verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, literally people. Nor will there be remembrance of latter things, people. We don't remember people of the past and nobody's going to remember us in the future. A movie that we just watched, I'm not sure I would recommend it. I mean, it's, it's, it actually parallels Ecclesiastes and makes you think about life in some pretty profound ways. Uh, but I'm, I can't recommend it. It's called About, About Schmidt, Jack Nicholson. And the movie set starts off with Schmidt, played by Jack Nicholson, sitting in an empty office with an old metal desk. He's sitting at his chair, um, staring at a clock, an analog clock, and it's just tick, tick, ticking on Friday 
late afternoon with about 30 seconds left until 5 p.m. And when the last tick hits and it's 5 p.m., he stands up, goes over, pulls his coat, his sport coat off a hanger, opens the door, looks back into the office at all the, um, the uh, boxes, all the stuff boxed up, shuts the door, heads home. 66 years old, been working for Woodman Insurance Company all his life, awaiting retirement, probably not enjoying anything along the way. As he walks into his house, you see him walk by an RV that he's going to actually uh, travel in with his wife. He's looking forward to that. And then uh, after he's home about a week, he goes back to the office to just check in on the guys to see if they need him. Of course, they didn't. He goes back home only to find his wife dead, that he doesn't get to enjoy um, all the fruits of their labor with his wife of 40-some years. That's a paradox. And here's the quote from Warren Schmidt at the end of the movie. He says, relatively soon I will die. Maybe in 20 years. Maybe tomorrow. It doesn't matter. Once I am dead and everyone who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. John Huston says something a similar way. He says this. He says, he says, you walk, speaking of the end of life, you walk through a series of arches, so to speak, and then presently at the end of a corridor, a door opens and you see backward through time and you feel the flow of time and realize you are only part of a great nameless procession. As we close this up, let me ask you, what is it that you always wanted out of life? The preacher points out that what is vain in order for us to discover what isn't. When all you ever wanted is enough, more time, more love, more wealth, more, wealth, more health, uh, you're going to find that it's all going to come up in the end empty at some level. And that's by design, because God has set eternity in all of our hearts. And the only ultimate satisfaction can be found in the person who created the Son, the one who is above the Son, and created you and I with relationship for relationship. And I want to remind you that above the Son, the one who rules over the Son, is always doing something new especially in Jesus Christ. God made a new covenant with us in the blood of Jesus Christ. God saw all of the futility. He saw all the sinfulness and vanity of this world, and he didn't say, what's the use? But instead, he chose to embark upon the most glorious and astounding paradox ever known. The holy, just, and sovereign creator of the universe entered into our fallen world and he died so that we might live. To live a new life with a new relationship with the eternal creator. And folks, I want to encourage you as we head into communion to 
to allow yourselves to marinate and to soak in this beautiful, um, inspired word called the book of Ecclesiastes. Wrestle with the truth of the words of the preacher that all is vanity. Wrestle with the questions of how, how do you find gain under the sun? Ask the question, what is it that you always wanted out of life? And before we pray, I want to remind you of this paradox called the already but not yet. We talk about it a lot. And as one who has received new life through faith in Jesus Christ, you live in the already but the not yet. You are already a new creation, but you are being made new. That you already have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, where He is always with you. But you're not yet fully with Him. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through Six, I want you to think about the already but not yet as we close this off. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All of the paradox and vanity and futility and brokenness will one day pass away. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. Take it to the bank. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of, of the water of life without payment. Let's pray.